has, as was mentioned earlier, I actually taught this in um, Sundays in July, but needed to do it again. And I even see that in God's providence because I made some modifications to that lesson. And then this will be available soon. And the question comes up, why this message itself? And before I answer that question of why, allow me to state my position. Um, I do believe in this beautiful combination of fasting and prayer. Uh, it has been a part of my life for quite a while. Uh, the first time that I can remember um, fasting and praying in a very concentrated way was just after I graduated from college. And I just looked at the Bible and I saw the words fasting and I saw people being called to fast. And at times they did it to seek God's face. So I just did it. I didn't know much at that time. And that was a great moment in my life because I, in that fasting and prayer time, um, I gained some insight about my future even in, in ministry and what I should do um, because my life had changed dramatically from what I had planned, as some of you have heard before, to God calling me to ministry, and then my whole trajectory had changed. And that was my first um, time with fasting and prayer. So over the years, I have sought to make it a part of my life, and there have been times I have fasted for long periods. Sometimes it's been a portion of the day uh, that I've fasted, but it's very much a regular part of, of what I do in my communion with God and also intercession for others as well. So I believe in it. Uh, I think it is a neglected discipline that at some point in time has been lost uh, in the church today, uh, in part because there's misunderstanding about it. What does the scripture really teach? Is it a requirement? Uh, is it commanded? And also, I think it's been misunderstood as I have seen people um, that hold to different doctrinal positions um, that it's very much a part of what they do. If you go now, and if you were to do a basic search on fasting, some of the people that you read, and may, even at times many of the people you might read, wouldn't uh, agree with us when it comes to other doctrines. So we tend to say, well, since they believe it, we shouldn't, which is always a misnomer because there are a number of things that other people believe that don't agree with us doctrinally, and they're fine statements. Um, how far does that go? I mean, there are obviously people that would say that don't believe all the things that we believe, and they would say, Jesus Christ is God. And we would surely say, we're in agreement on that. And they would say, Jesus Christ uh, is the only way. He's an exclusive Savior. And we would agree with that. No problem. We can't just discount people because they differ in other areas. And mainly I'm talking about especially like charismatics and extreme charismatics, the prosperity gospel uh, heretics that are out there. At times, they stumble onto truth. They do. <laughs> and so we have to recognize those moments when that occurs. Uh, and so you say to yourself, well, okay, you believe that. You've already told us you believe it. Um, how did you come to that conclusion? Well, we're going to look at some texts and even look at a bit of history that will help us um, understand it better. Here is a, a statement, what I hope to achieve in this study. What do I hope to achieve? Uh, some key words, define, provide, give, exposit, inspire, and answer. Number one, we need to define fasting. What is fasting? What does this really mean? Can I give up uh, my favorite comedy during the week? Is that fasting? Um, can I not go to a ball game for several seasons and, <clears throat> and that be fasting? I see some people saying, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> Um, then I also want to do this, provide biblical examples of fasting. What are some biblical examples of fasting and how do we understand them and some even in context? Then I like to do this. I want to give examples of people who benefited from fasting and prayer in history. There have been significant Christian leaders, including, but not limited to the reformers, Puritans, and we're going to also include several contemporary, contemporary Christian leaders as well. Then once we've done that, we want to exposit the scripture. Um, Matthew 6, um, 1 through 18, we'll go back to the Sermon on the Mount, and Matthew 9, 14 through 17, and get Christ's understanding about what did he say about fasting and prayer. Let's understand our Savior in this area. And there's some key words in both of those passages that I think have been misunderstood 
that we need to understand them properly. And then the next thing is to inspire. I want to inspire you to engage in fasting and prayer. As you follow the example of Old Testament saints, the apostles, and I would say great men and women throughout history. Inspiration. Now notice the word different, inspiration, but not command. I can't command you to do it because it's not commanded in Scripture. Um, But I think you may be inspired as we work through it. And then answer. I want to answer several common questions and give some guidelines, some important guidelines for fasting and prayer. Now, before we do that, I need to make a necessary statement. A necessary statement, it is this. Fasting without prayer is a powerless asceticism. It is. Um, It's powerless. Um, Because uh, one may fast, but if it's not joy to prayer, this is not the spiritual intention that you will see throughout history, and it is just that. It is just asceticism. And so in that sense that you fast without prayer, this is not the intention of Scripture. You may fast, and there's great benefit to it. It's, it's the popular thing nowadays. And, um, and, and I don't mean that in, in a way that's um, uh, derogatory at all, but um, some of you in this room may be involved in um, intermittent fasting, right? So you're on a 16-8 plan, or if you're truly aggressive, you're on like a 24 plan, which is very aggressive. So you have 20 hours of fasting and four-hour window to eat, or 16 hours of fasting and eight-hour window to eat. And I've done that before, and I go in and out doing that. And there is a great benefit to fasting. It's good for everything. It gives your body a break from um, its digestive tract. Uh, you can cleanse yourself out, especially if you fast and you drink water. It's great for the skin. Um, you say, well, okay, I'm in now. <laughs> so, but those two must be joined together. Uh, listen to this. Listen to what Spurgeon said, uh, a blessing lost. He thought that it was a blessing lost. In a um, sermon actually preached in 1864, and it is a desperate case how to meet it. He said this, not a kind of religious observance, that is, he's talking about fasting, not a kind of religious observance in itself meritorious, but a habit when associated with the exercise of prayer, unquestionably helpful. I'm not sure whether we have lost a very great blessing in the Christian church by giving up fasting. And this is what he says. In itself, there is no merit to it, but when it's joined with the exercise of prayer, it is unquestionably helpful. And Spurgeon went on to say that at times when he would fast and he would pray, he felt as light as a feather. He felt himself lifting from the air, if you will. And what we need to know, Spurgeon was quite the the witty person. And he also said, some of you can't imagine me, that happening to me, being a chunky person. <laughs> and as you know, Spurgeon, he was <laughs> being a chunky person. If they were to draw a picture of it, you would say, that's impossible. How can Mr. Spurgeon be lifted up like this? But he says, spiritually, I would be. I would be when I would fast and pray. So we move ahead and we say, fasting and prayer define. Let me give you some words that would help you. And the words are intensity, sacrifice, humility, earnest. Why those words? Because when fasting is then joined to prayer, it's intensifying prayer. It is not the fast itself, but it's a way that will help you intensify your prayers. It's a sacrifice because you give up food for a period of time. And I'll talk about some situations where maybe you can't do that, but you give up something else. So it's a sacrifice. It's humility. Um, You see throughout Scripture that the people of God, whomever they may be, are humbling themselves before the Lord, and we will fast and we will pray. Because prayer itself is an act of humility, is it not? Because when you're praying, you're essentially saying, God, I do not have the spiritual resources. I don't have the answer. I don't have the wisdom. I don't have the insight. I need help from you. And so then fasting is increasing that sense of humility because he's saying, God, what about my necessary food? 
that I trust that you'll sustain me during this time. And we can also say earnest, earnest being similar perhaps to intensity, but we can maybe, instead of just saying it being intense, we can say there's a seriousness to it, there's a soberness to it, there's a focus that comes with it, a person being in earnest. And so it helps us in that way. Consider this quote from a a work called Fasting Ancient Practices, and it says this, Fasting is a choice not to eat for a designated period because some moment is so sacred that partaking in food would deface or profane the seriousness of the moment. Fasting is the natural, inevitable response of a person to a grievous, sacred moment in life. And what they're saying, there may be moments in life where you just say, uh, this requires intensity. And maybe it could be something, there's a, a grief that's in the heart even. Lord, I need to seek your face in this way. And as well, John Broadus said this, and listen, fasting is right only when your condition makes it natural. In a time of joy, fasting would be unnatural and could not express a genuine feeling. But persons who are in great distress are naturally inclined to abstain from eating. Fasting can deepen those spiritual impulses toward worship and devout meditation. And what Broadus is in part saying is that even when you feel yourself um, pressed in or there's a great burden on your heart, you lose your appetite anyway, for the most part. Now, I know there are people that, I guess, what do you call it? Um, sort of eating. What do you call it? Uh, panic eating. Panic eating. <laughs> yeah, I suppose you could. Um, yes, you, some people, they feel stressed out, they go get a chocolate bar. Um, or they feel stressed out. Oh, I meant comfort food. That's what I meant to say, comfort food. You could take that approach, but for the most part, you're like, ah, not now. I'm focusing on something else. And in the book entitled, Why Should I Fast?, which I just read recently, I wish I had seen it before, um, some helpful thoughts here. And he says this, fasting is a way of testing ourselves to see what will master us. Will it be the self or the Savior, our gut or God's grace? How does fasting help us to mortify sin? It assists our spiritual senses so that we pray with more earnestness and focus. As the ancient um, Christian theologian Tertullian said, when we fast, we assail heaven with eager importunity and touch God's heart. And also, he quotes from Thomas Aquinas, said that fasting has sensed the mind to rise more freely to the contemplation of heavenly things. And then also referring to William Ames, um, he said, fasting is most religious when the whole mind is so attentive to seeking God that it is called away from the thought and care of the things of this present life. I'm going to sacrifice God. I am in earnest, God. I'm serious about this, God. So I'm giving up what I need naturally to sustain me, and I'm seeking more of what I need spiritually to sustain me and to give me wisdom and to give me insight. So um, it's important. What about the scope of fasting and prayer? The scope of it is this. It's national or individual. At times, the two are going to be combined. So let's look at some examples um, through Scripture to help us understand this better. Um, first is national, and it was at a pointed, uh, at a pointed fast. And what were they? Well, the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, Leviticus 23. So during the Day of Atonement, it was a called fast. It was commanded. Everyone was to participate in that fast. But you also see it in exilic and post-exilic times. In um, Zechariah 7, notice if you will with me, Zechariah 7, I think that would be helpful for us to consider. Zechariah 7, notice what it says in verses 3 through 5. It says, um, in the fourth year of King Darius, um, it says in verse 2, now the town of Bethel had seen Shazrazir, and Regimelech and their men to seek, or sent them to seek the favor of the Lord. 
Then in verse 3, speaking to the priests who belong to the house of the Lord of hosts and to the prophets, saying, Shall I weep in the fifth month and abstain, as I have done these many years? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and the seventh month, these seventy years, was it actually for me that you fasted? When you eat and drink, do you not eat for yourselves? And do you not drink for yourselves? Are not these the words which the Lord proclaimed to the prophets? Um, and notice what he's saying here, especially in verse 5. When you did it, was it for me? And now it's a question of sincerity. Um, and what he's doing is that he's indicting the people of God and says, yes, you did it, but it was just for religious show. It wasn't really in the heart. It wasn't to seek my face is what's being communicated there. And then if you look at um, chapter 8, verse 19, and it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth months will become joy, gladness, and cheerful feasts for the house of Judah, so love, truth, and peace. God is going to help the people of God have the right heart, the right attitude. And then you also see it in Esther 9.31. Uh, remember, Esther has uncovered the plot, um, and the, the people of God are in danger, and there is a fast that's called for the people throughout the Persian kingdom. So we see it in groups, um, commanded in the Day of Atonement, and then we can say individually, we see throughout Scripture, um, Hannah desires a son. Um, she desires a son, and she fasts before the Lord. Moses for 40 days, and that was uh, supernatural, and it was supernatural because to fast for 40 days without food can be done. It's a strict discipline, but to fast without 40 days of water, you will die. So we know that Jesus Christ did it, we know that Moses did it, we know that Elijah did it. And in all three instances, we would say those are absolutely supernatural instances of fasting and prayer. Then Nehemiah, Nehemiah fasts before the Lord, because Nehemiah is going to ask permission of the king that he can go back, because his heart is broken, that the walls of Jerusalem are torn down, and he fasts. And what's interesting, too, if you follow his interaction with the king. There are times when Nehemiah is going before the king and it says, and I fasted. And what it's doing is giving us a picture that even as he is walking towards the king, he is, he is uh, praying before the Lord that the, the Lord would give him favor. We see it in the life of Daniel, Daniel fasting, Elijah for 40 days, and then in Esther as well. Another occasion when we would see fasting uh, is in troubling times. In the book of Judges, we know the book of Judges goes through these seven cycles of sin, and at times the people of God would seek his face, but yet sadly fall back into sin. We see it in the book of Job. If we turn to Job briefly, Job 1.14, and in 1.14 it says, Consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land, to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. So the imagery here is when they were called to fast and pray, it was a crying out to their heavenly Father, um, saying, we need your intervention. Now, having said that, consider the words of Calvin on the purpose of fasting in his institutes. And I have said this before. Uh, one beautiful thing about Calvin and the, all of his brilliance if you look in his institutes, you will find uh, that the largest chapter in his institutes is actually on prayer. Because when we think Calvin, we, we surely think foreknowledge. We think um, the majesty of God. You, you think um, um, atonement with Calvin. You think pre predestination with Calvin. And all those things are absolutely true of him. But if you look, prayer. Calvin was a man of prayer. And notice what he says about fasting. I quote, the design of fast is that the flesh be mortified, that we may be better prepared for prayer, and that we may be evidence of humility and obedience. 
They consist of three things, the time, the quality, and the quantity of food. But here we must beware lest we rend our garments only and not our hearts, as hypocrites do, lest those actions be regarded as a meritorious performance and lest they be too rigorously demanded as necessary to salvation. And what Calvin is saying here is essentially, look at your heart. And this is what we'll notice when we look especially at Matthew 16. And even as um, Spurgeon says, it's not a meritorious work. And Calvin is saying the same thing. Let's not be confused. And if there there were definitely some at some point in time that would have taught that if you don't fast, that's a sign that you perhaps don't even know the Lord. And of course, that's not true. That now um, brings up the spirit of the Pharisees and the spirit of the Pharisees wanted to be noted for their fasting. But Calvin says there is a time and place for it. We see fasting also in this. Even heathens fasted. You remember Jonah uh, when he went to preach at Nineveh. The king calls it fast and perhaps the Lord will relent. And the Lord did in fact do that. And then even preparing for a holy war. But interesting, in this occasion, though, uh, Saul, uh, as they're fighting the Philistines, he calls people to fast, and he says, let not a man bite anything. Let not him lift his mouth to eat food. And Jonathan comes, because they come to a a plot where there is honey that is on the ground, and people are saying, well, we can't do it because we took an oath. And Jonathan, his son, comes, and he put his staff in it, and he dipped it up to his mouth, and it says, and his eyes became bright, is what it says. And everyone else did the same thing, and they went out, and they routed the Philistines. So uh, are there other examples when there would be a fast before a holy war that was right? Yes. But in this case, what Solomon called people to do, no, it wasn't. And then as well, what we want to consider is the sign of mourning the dead. And at the death of Saul, there was a fast that was called. What are some aspects of fasting? Let's kind of work our way through through these. Uh, Number one is grief. Uh, There is grief. So even as uh, Nehemiah felt grief in his heart, or the people of God would feel grief in their heart, or those that were um, sad because of the passing of Saul, that there would be a fast, or repentance. The confession of sin was a time to fast and pray, God, we have failed you. We have sinned against you. And then also humbling is a part of this. Look at um, Psalm 69 with me. Humbling oneself is a part of it. Psalm 69, verses 10 and 11. And here it says, Uh, Verse 9 says, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I weep in my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. So, Uh, The psalmist says he is seeking the Lord in this way, but yet his enemies are detractors during this time. Um, Also consider with me as um, Psalm 35. Go back to Psalm 35. Psalm 35 and then verse 13. 35-13, he says, But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth, I humbled my soul with fasting, and my prayer kept returning to my bosom. Again, David is um, seeking rescue from his enemies, and although he was spited, he says, but still my response was to seek the Lord through fasting and through prayer. Um, We might also take note, it's also appealing to God to intervene. An appeal to God to intervene. We see this in Exodus 34, Ezra chapter 9, and again, Nehemiah chapter 1. God, will you intervene? We need your help. Now, we, we move from there. We go into the early church. Where do we see it in the early church? Uh, in Israel, the Day of Atonement, Acts 27. They're still recognizing this call to fast during uh, the Day of Atonement, and we find the people of God fasting. Look at Acts 27 with me. 
Acts 27, and then in verse 9, 27-9, he says, When considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over, Paul began to admonish them. And ultimately, he admonishes them, there's going to be great damage, but no life will be lost. So he's observing the fast during this Day of Atonement. And then we see the Pharisees. And even certain Pharisees would fast twice a week, on Monday and Thursday. We see that in Luke chapter 18, verse 12. So very purposeful in their fasting, Monday and Thursday. But we'll notice uh, the motive behind their fasting is not pure. The consistency of it, but the motive behind it, not. And then if we were to consider Luke 2.37, Anna fasted often. And let's just read that. Uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke 2, and it says, uh, verse 36, And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, and it lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then a widow, it says, to the age of 84. She never left the temple serving day and night with fastings and prayer. Uh, a woman given to prayer and fasting. Okay, well, we see this in the early church. What about early Christians? Turn with me to the book of Acts. Turn with me to Acts again. Acts chapter 10. Acts 10, and then verse 30. We see Cornelius fasted before the Caesarean given of the Spirit. And then in Acts 10, 30, it says what? Cornelius said, four days ago to this hour, I was praying in my house during the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me shining in garments. And he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. And then notice, if you will, Acts chapter 13. Look at Acts 13, verses 2 and 3. Acts 13, 2 and 3, we see the church does this when they're selecting and commissioning missionaries. Acts 13, 2 and 3. And what does it say? While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which you have called them. Verse 3. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So this is very much a part of the early church. So uh, imagine this, before a missionary is being sent out, let us fast and pray, let us be in earnest, let's intensify our prayers, and now we lay hands on you and send you out. Look at Acts 14. Acts 14, 23. Acts 14, 23. Looking at 13, I was wondering. Um, uh, 21, after they had preached the gospel to the city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. 23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So now, again, the early church, um, this is not uh, died out with the Old Testament. This is very much a part of the early Christian life, if you will, even associated with those that, that are going to go out and be preachers of the gospel, to be missionaries. Notice what Calvin said about this, commenting on Acts 14.23 in his Institutes. He says this, their calling is twofold, twofold internal and external. The internal is from the Spirit of God. The external, there are four things to be considered. Number one, what sort of persons ought to be chosen? Men of doctrine and holy lives. Then number two, in what manner? And he says, with fasting and prayer. And I won't go through three and four, but he's essentially saying, when there's a calling in a man's life, it's something internal and external, which is true. 
there's an internal calling. And, and those of you men that um, are here today, uh, you're in seminary or you're an elder in the church, there's an internal calling that you have. And the Spirit of God places that in your heart. But there also must be an external, which is the church also agreeing with your calling. Because there are people in life that I have known over the years, they would say that I'm called, but I would say that you are not. <laughs> they receive their calling from the Lord. I'm not sure what um, carrier you're with, <laughs> but uh, you're getting some bad signals. That is not from the Lord. Because you look at their life and you look at their doctrine and you say, no, God is not calling you. And that's why there must be an external affirmation of what they say is internal. Um, so he says, Calvin, he recognizes, yes, fasting and prayer. We see it in the life of Paul as well. In Acts chapter 9, we've already noted Acts 27 uh, as well. But let's move ahead. And my timing seems to be fairly decent. Uh, let's move ahead. Post-apostolic age. Let's look at some names of people and what they have said even through history. Martin Luther. Listen to Martin Luther. And what did he say? And there's a list of names there. Martin Luther, Calvin, Knox, Wesley, the London Plagues, Edwards, Boston, and C.H. Spurgeon. But Luther, listen, quote, fasting, praying, going to church are good works if they're done in the right spirit. If you desire to fast and pray like Anna, well and good. But take care, but take good care that first of all, you imitate her character and then her works. And essentially what Luther is saying is, yes, it's wonderful. And that's not a bad example. But first, make sure you look to the person's character and not the work itself. And then notice again what Calvin says. And it's a longer quote, but I give it to you again from his institutes. Um, he says, hence fasting, as it is a sign of humiliation has a more frequent use in public than among private individuals, although, as we have said, it is common to both. In regard, then, to the discipline of which we now treat, whenever supplication is to be made to God, and on an important occasion, it is befitting to appoint a period for fasting and prayer. Thus, when the Christians at Antioch laid hands on Barnabas and Paul, that they might... <clears throat> the better recommend their ministry, which was of great importance. They joined fasting and prayer, Acts 13 and 3. Thus these two apostles afterwards, when they appointed ministers to churches, were wont to use fasting and prayer, Acts 14, 23. In general, the only object which they had in fasting was to render themselves more alert and, he says here, disencumbered, for prayer. And I like that, disencumbered for prayer. Um, the scripture tells us what in the book of Hebrews, uh, we need to look ahead of us, this faith that's in front of us, and lay aside what? And what does the sin do? It encumbers us. I ask you a question. How, have, how many times, I won't even ask you if it's happened, how many times does it, does it happen when you are praying and you desire to pray and your mind becomes distracted. Mm, you have the best of intentions, don't you? This is the moment. I'm going to seek the living God. And then you fall on your knees, or it's on your couch, or it's your favorite um, chair that you have, or wherever it may be, and you begin to pray, and the mind goes here. And it goes to the left and to the right, and it thinks about other things. And sometimes, here's a scary thought about our own sinfulness, sometimes even sinful thoughts. Yeah. And I think there are moments when we should, perhaps even in fasting and prayer, help hone our thoughts. Even if it's for a meal. Lord, I really need to seek your face on this. I'll skip lunch. I'm going to focus. I'm going to be, as uh, Calvin said, disencumbered for prayer. John Knox. We, we know John Knox. And, and what did the great queen say? That she feared the prayers of John Knox. John Knox more than all the armies of Scotland. And why? Because John Knox would at times join fasting to prayer. I mean, think about that of, of him. Oh, it's his prayers. I fear that more than anything. And in part, 
Not in whole, in part because Knox was a man of fasting and prayer as well. John Wesley, he had an expectation for the young men that would be a part of his ministry school, that they would commit themselves to a weekly time to fast and pray. Even in the London plagues, what is interesting, that um, the government calling on the people to London to fast and seek God's mercy. It would be like us today um, if, you know, the fires that come our way um, in the summer or floods that may come after the, after the winter time that our governor calling us to say, Californians, would you seek the living God and ask that he would be merciful on us, although we are surely not deserving. What a moment that would be. <laughs> yeah, if only it could happen. Well, we should fast and pray. <laughs> pray for Gavin Newsom. We pray for, we need to, on our Tuesday time, we, offer pray, we all, always pray for Biden and, and Harris and for their souls because they have an incredible amount of accountability before the living God. An incredible amount. They have led so many people astray. And their legislation and the things that they have been advocates for have destroyed lives. And so we pray for their souls. And we, should, we, need, to add, we need to add Gavin Newsom every Tuesday and pray for his soul. Jonathan Edwards. What is, um, if I were to ask you right now, what is Edwards' most famous sermon? Sinners in the hands of an angry... And what did he do? Uh, 22 hours before he preached that sermon, he sought the Lord through fasting and praying. Lord, will you do a work in the hearts of people that will hear this message? And in fact, he did. I mean, people weeping and, and almost they're rending their clothes practically as they heard the word of God, go, word of God going forth. And the images that um, God had given, and I just say God given, not by way of revelation, but simply his own natural abilities that was created. Like you are like a spider that, are, that is hanging above hell and there's nothing that's holding you back except for this, this small web that is there. And at one point in time, it will be let loose and you will fall into hell for an eternity. Now, even today, people don't want to preach such things. They don't want to preach about hell. All of these so-called preachers today, I call them these crackpot preachers, they want to preach, oh, how can you have your better life? It's yours. You have the potential. Friend, I see it in you. I see it in you. Then what do they do? Then they, they do these sort of things. Say to your friend, I see it to you. Everyone, say it to everyone. Now, don't you dare do that. Don't you dare do that. And that's what they do. Say to your neighbor, I see it in you. I see it in you, Right? This is what they do. I got the moves. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's what they do. No, as opposed to friends. Without Christ, an eternity of separation from the living God. That's what you're facing. And that should burden your heart. That should break your heart. Is Gavin Newsom a wicked and worthless man? Absolutely. Should we pray for his soul? Absolutely. If you don't pray for his soul, you don't have the heart of God. <laughs> let me just make this statement. Absolutely not in the notes, but let me make this statement. Who do you think you were beforehand? Were you not wretched and undone? Were you not a sinner? Were you not, according to the word of God, ungodly? Were you not an enemy? Were you not helpless? Were you not blind? Were you not an enemy of God? And then we tend to get on the other side of the Jordan. <laughs> and we look at that Gavin Newsom. Look at that Joe Biden. Look at that Kamala Harris. Wretched sinners. <laughs> yeah. They are that, but still have the heart of God. Do you agree with me on this? Yes, absolutely. You must. You must. So then Thomas Boston, I could talk about Boston, but time is, is moving away. So let's go to Charles Spurgeon in a sermon preached 19, 19, no, 1886. 1886, the sermon titled The Secret of Failure from Matthew 17, 19 through 21, February 5th, 1886. Listen to Spurgeon. He says, 
But still, Holy Scripture does speak of fasting. In certain cases, it advises fasting. And there were godly men and godly women, such as Anna, the prophetess who served God with fasting and prayers day and night. I do not mean to spiritualize this way. I believe literally that some of you would be a great deal better if you did occasionally have a whole day of fasting and prayer. There is a lightness that comes over the frame, especially of bulky people like myself. (laughs) We begin to feel ourselves quite light and ethereal. I remember one day of fasting and prayer in which I realized to myself spiritually the meaning of the popish picture, which I have sometimes seen of a saint floating in the air. Well, that, of course, was impossible. And I do not suppose that when the picture was painted, it was believed to be in a literal sense. But there is lightness and elevation of spirit above the flesh that will come over you after hours of waiting upon God and fasting and prayer. End quote. This is what Spurgeon said. Do I agree with that? I do. From an experiential standpoint, I do. Now, experience, of course, is not an authority, but we don't absolutely discount experience either. If I were to say to some of you, have you not read the, wor- the word of God sometimes and it brings tears to your eyes? Would you say that? Wait a minute, you can't. That's your experience. Let's not talk about such things. Or have you not read the word of God and you're just, oh, Lord, thank you. I cannot believe that this is true. You feel even a, a burden lifted from your soul. That's your experience. What does the Bible say that Christians are to have such experiences? Show me the page. Give me the verse, the chapter. Experience is not to be discounted. Experience when it contradicts Scripture is to be discounted. So this is what Spurgeon said. And there is D.L. Moody. There is Amy Carmichael. There's Hudson Taylor. He talked about that he found the Chinese Christians when he came to China that they had the habit of fasting and prayer. Mueller uh, George Mueller and the, the influence that they had on the Schaefers as they saw his example and it helped form even their spiritual life. And even the, in the Westminster Larger Catechism, when it is answering question number eight, if you'd like to consider it, and it talks about religious fasting and the need for it. Then there's some contemporary voices, and let me go through them hurriedly. Um, Dr. James Roscoe. Um, and seminary years ago, uh, was the head of the Bible department here at the Master's Seminary. And I remember taking a course with Dr. James Roscoe many years ago. It probably was 1991, maybe, maybe 90, yeah, 91. And dated myself. I was seven at the time. <laughs> and, uh, and, I remember the, the title of the course was Biblical Expositions of Prayer. And we literally looked at every prayer in the Bible with Dr. Roscoe. A great man of prayer that loved the Lord. Uh, two earned doctorates, but humble and meek. And you, you saw sincerity about Dr. Roscoe. And for me to think that even right now, the privilege of teaching some of the things that he taught. Joe Beakey, and you'll be hearing from him in a couple of months. Um, as he talks in here is a quote from Joe Beakey. And when I say a couple of months, in case you don't know Joe Beakey, Puritan scholar, um, the Puritan conference that is coming here. And he says, fasting is an important biblical discipline for private and public devotion. Yet it is generally forgotten today as if it were a part of some extreme asceticism that we have outgrown. I don't think we've outgrown it. We, perhaps we have a greater need for it. Paul Washer, even two years ago in a personal conversation with him, and he was, we were talking about his ministry when he was um, in um, South America and how at times he could do nothing but fall on his knees and seek the Lord through fasting and prayer. John Piper, in his classic work, Hunger for God. And he says this, that is the meaning of fasting. It cries out, This I want more than the pleasure of food, and this can be the admiration that men give to people with all power, or it can be the reward we seek from God alone without the praise of men. And what he's saying is that I need more insight. Help me, Lord. John MacArthur. Let's talk about John MacArthur for a moment. And you've not heard much from him on it, 
um, because at times he doesn't always share as much about his personal life. But if I were to go back to Q&A, um, I remember years ago uh, when his son Mark had a brain tumor and he sought the Lord in fasting and prayer. And here are his own words from the Q&A because someone asked him about fasting and prayer and he said this in 1997. There are times when it would be appropriate to fast and that would be associated with times of importunity, which means times of relentless prayer and concern about those matters which are on our hearts. I can give you some personal experience from my own life. When great crisis came into my own family, fasting is somewhat of a normal response to those kinds of exigencies. I can look back to the longest time of fasting that I ever experienced in my life. It was nine or ten days in which I ate nothing. That was a time when I was going through great concern and prayer over the fact that my son Mark had been diagnosed as having a brain tumor, which could be fatal. And immediately, of course, he was in the last year of college at that time. And I think that it was his last year. And of course, it was a tremendous amount of concern over that. And he goes on to talk about how he sought the Lord. Well, I, Mark is still with us today. So we see it throughout history. I'm going to skip those initial conclusions because I think what I've said can draw them for you. Let's go to Matthew chapter 6. We see Jesus' practice, which as he opens his ministry, he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. Supernatural, as he is being commissioned. We see that in Matthew chapter 4, 1 through 4. But then it's his teaching. Look with me at Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6, and it says what there? Matthew 6, 1 to 4, uh, the three marks of Jewish piety. And what were the three marks of Jewish piety? Number one, giving to the poor, verses 1 to 4. Number two was prayer, verses 5 to 15. Number three was fasting. So let's unfold this uh, rather, rather briefly. First, there's a resistance to hypocrisy and human approval. Notice verses 16 and 17. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. Avoid hypocrisy. Because the Pharisees would do what? You're probably familiar with it. They would fast and they would be gloomy and slouched over so people could say, oh, what a religious person you are. And particularly those that did it on Monday and Thursday, they wanted to be noticed by, by men. And he says, but you, verse 17, when you fast, anoint your head with oil and wash your face. Don't at least by your appearance let others know that you're going through it. At least don't let that be uh, your motive, is what's being communicated. Now, if you're going for a longer fast, someone may eventually say, oh, you've lost weight. That may happen. Uh, it's happened to me any number of times. Um, but I don't pronounce it to gain um, notoriety from anyone. Are there times when I, my former churches let them know that I was going to fast and pray for a period of time? I did. And I called them to join me. And I would say to some of them, uh, this may be new for you, and perhaps you can only do a meal. And at times I've done longer fasts, and I, would, and I wrote up a schedule. And on the schedule was a verse that we would all read together on that day. And here are the things we can pray about together on that day. And people would say, okay, Pastor, I'm going to join you for that day. Or I'm going to join you for that meal. And at times I would say to them, and I would say to you even now, you start, and perhaps it's just a meal. And just like I would say years ago, um, well, friends, if you never eat lunch, don't give up lunch. <laughs> That's not fasting because you're not sacrificing anything. When you say, I've never been a breakfast person, pastor, I'll join you in the morning. No, no, that's not the approach to take. It has to cost you something. Because here's the very practical thing about it, especially maybe for me, the first three days, I still feel... Something is happening. I, I have a desire. And every time I feel that in my belly, I pray. Every time I get a whiff of something, I pray. <laughs> <laughs> the, 
then I get to a point where food doesn't matter. I mean, there have been many times with my family over the years, all of them would be there at the table having a full meal, and it didn't matter to me because my thoughts were about God, and often it was for them. I prayed at times in a concentrated way for, for Joanna and for all my kids. I prayed in concentrated ways for my boys and their purity. I prayed in concentrated ways for my daughters. I prayed for their souls, that they would escape hell. I prayed for congregants because their marriages are muck. I prayed for men that I know are struggling with pornography, and I see too many people in the church that are struggling with it, and I sought the Lord for those people. Because what is prayer but the sense that you're bringing people before the throne of God that they can receive grace in their time of need? And fasting helped focus that time. I w- it would be in earnest. It, w- it would intensify it. And so the hypocrites here are unlike that. But notice, if you will, verse 18, the priority of divine approval. So when you fast, it will not be noticed by men, but by your father who is in secret, and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. But see, the question comes up, and this is sometimes where there's confusion, and it was confusion some years ago, even when I taught it um, in Dulos, and we went through a process, and I met with the leaders to help them understand this better, because people will say, wait a minute, it says secret. You're not supposed to let anyone know, and he actually... Every time you let a person know, you violated a principle of this passage. That's not what Jesus is saying. It's, it's, he is looking to the heart. He's saying, you hypocrites, if you really want to be a person of fasting and prayer, do it in secret. Let's see if you continue to do it on Monday and Thursdays. When you have to anoint your head and wash your face, let's see if you continue to do it. So he's saying secret in the sense that It should be something that is private, but that doesn't mean it can only be in private. Because if you were to follow that principle, or at least that interpretation of secret, we run into a problem. You say, what problem do we run into? Well, let's go back at the the rest of the chapter. Notice, if you will, what it says in verses 1 through 4, because they are giving to the poor. And what does it say that? So when you give to the poor, you don't sound the trumpet. You don't let everyone know because you want to be honored by men, but you have your reward in full. Verse 4, so your giving will be in secret. And what is he communicating here? Do it in secret. Does it mean that a person can never let another individual know? Oh, I gave to this fund. I give to Children's Hunger Fund. I give to Compassion International. I'm giving to the youth ministry. No, it doesn't mean that. But it means check your heart. That's what he's looking at. Uh, even if you were to take this to the, the extreme level of secret then, if it's always being secret, uh, when it comes to you giving to the church, don't put in your little envelope. Just give it to the Lord. Don't put your name on it. Forget your tax breaks. Just do it to him. But that's not what he's saying. He says, look at your heart. Do it in secret. And then you would have to say the same thing even about prayer. Because they stand on the street corners, if you will, and they want to pray in the synagogues, and they want everyone to see that they're people of prayer. But he says, go to your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. Now, the question would be then, if we take secret to mean it is in our closet, it's in our prayer room, and we must close our door, then should we even have our Tuesday night prayer time? Can we gather together and pray with one another? Of course we can. He is addressing the issue of the heart, is what he's doing. So even when it comes to fasting and prayer, if one's motives are right, friend, let's fast and pray together. Let's seek the Lord's intervention on this. A spiritual leader may say, I'm going to fast and pray with you. Would you like to join me? It's motives. This is what he's saying. And then chapter 9, briefly. Chapter 9, 14 through 17. Um, The disciples don't fast, but the Pharisees do. The words are fairly straightforward here. Verse 15, well, because the bridegroom is here. 
That is, he is here. Christ is here. But when he's taken away, what is going to happen? When will he be taken away? Um, through his death and resurrection. Then they will fast. And notice what it says. Uh, taken away. They will fast. So now the question comes, it says they will fast. Now we have to look for something that prohibits fasting in the scripture. Christ says they will fast. Who are the disciples? So did he only mean his disciples that were there at the moment? Did he mean that those disciples, when they die out, they would no longer fast anymore? Did he say after the early Testament age that fasting would no longer be relevant? No, he didn't. He simply said they will fast, which means us, but not commanded, but as spiritually led. So let me give, give you some guidelines and answer a couple of questions here. All right. Number one, how should we understand Mark 29 and 1 Corinthians 7, 5? Because in Mark 29, it says this kind can only come out by anything but prayer. And then 1 Corinthians 7, 5, stop depriving one another except for the, a time that you may, I'm sorry, you may devote yourselves to prayer, then come together again. Now, if you were to look at the King James and the New King James, um, no other translations, at least ones that we would use, they are going to have just prayer. New King James, King James, fasting and prayer. These kind will only come out by fasting and prayer. And then in Corinthians, give yourselves to fasting and prayer. King James and New King James. So we have issues of manuscripts. And I'm looking at the time. And trust me um, <laughs> on this. There's differences in manuscripts and what these manuscripts say. Um, the King James, New King James, they feel comfortable with their manuscript evidence and say, we're going to retain it. Most others will say, we're not comfortable with retaining and fasting, our fasting and prayer. But what is interesting, everything that I've read, even those scholars that would say, um, we think go with the earlier manuscript, the shorter reading, although on one occasion it's flipped. There's greater manuscripts um, that say that you should have fasting as well. All of them would say this, even someone like a Bruce Metzger, a great New Testament scholar, would say, because it was so common during that period of time, that person decided they, it should be added to it. It was a common practice. So that tells you something about the church at that time. Number two is this. If this is a new experience for you, start slow and develop over time. Yeah, it could be a meal. It could be half a day. It may just be that lunch. It just may be a breakfast. But consider starting. Again, listen to my words. Consider starting. Not commanded to start. Oh, you must start. Or the scripture says you must do this. Uh, number three, it's been asked, how long should I fast? That's a matter of personal choice. And that's going to be based on whatever spiritual burden you may have at the time. Number four, I would say this, under special circumstances, some may need to consider alternatives. And I say medical circumstances. I've known people and have asked me, Pastor, I can't go without a certain intake. I just can't. Yeah, that's fine. Um, think about something else that would be a sacrifice, a true sacrifice that you can give up that will intensify your prayer life. Number five, remember to complement that is fasting and prayer with the proper environment. Avoid distractions. The mind is already distracted anyway, isn't it? Avoid distractions. This is a time to sort of break away from your normal schedule to give more time to prayer. What are some things you should avoid? The intake of entertainment. Don't say, well, I'm going to seek the Lord in fasting and prayer. Is there a double header on tonight? No. Five hours of TV and 40 minutes of prayer, bad formula. Do we agree with that? Especially if you're saying, I have a burden, I have a concern, I want to be focused. I would also say this, use it for scripture meditation. When you're going to fast and pray, have some scriptures that you're meditating on and thinking about and are going through your mind. I would say it's also this, use it for personal reflection. God, what is it that you're trying to teach me? What is the lesson to be learned? Then I would say this, use it for Godward contemplation to think about God and who he is. And the last thing is remember to avoid the pharisaical display. God, I do it 
because I'm rending my heart, not my garments. And even as um, in Isaiah 58, um, the scripture tells us that God makes a statement. Do you fast? He says that you would take hold of God. And so part of it is to focus our time to be with the Lord in special circumstances and particular burdens that we may have. Okay, I know I said a lot, um, and you may have questions. If you have any questions about it, email me. Our next, our, just ask me about them. Um, I wish I had time to interact with you, but I don't. Maybe I'll open next week with some Q&A and go into Isaiah 43. All right, the Lord be with you.